All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Monday. It is a new year. Happy 2022 to each and every one of you. And as we have for many months now, we are standing in the confessional corner on this Monday to finish up Article 21 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on the Invocation of Saints. Last week, we talked about the basics of the understandings of the Invocation Now we're going to grapple with the main theological thrust of it as we look at paragraphs 21 through 44. We start off with 21 through 23. Here the adversaries ask us first to invoke the saints, although they have neither God's promise nor command nor an example from Scripture. Yet they incite greater confidence in the saints' mercy than in Christ's mercy, although Christ asks us to come to him and not to the saints. Second, they apply the saints' merits just as Christ merits to others. They ask us to trust in the saints' merits as though they were, we were regarded righteous because of their merits, just as we are regarded righteous by Christ's merits. We are making none of this up. In indulgences, the adversaries say that they apply the saints' merits. And Gabriel Briel, the intra- And Gabriel Beale, the interpreter of the canon of the Mass, confidently declares, according to the order instituted by God, we should betake ourselves to the aid of the saints in order that we may be saved by their merits and vows. These are Gabriel's words. Nevertheless, still more silly things are read here and there in the adversary's books and sermons. What is this other than creating people who make atonement? If we must trust that we are saved by their merits, they are completely equal to Christ. Gabriel Beale, being one of the great medieval theologians in the Catholic Church, the interpreter of the canon of the Mass, the large prayer before the consecration of the elements that go and list through all kinds of saints, he says we must betake ourselves to the aid of the saints, for their merits, not for Christ. And how are they not being made atonement makers? We keep moving on. Where has this arrangement to which Gabriel refers when he says that we should resort to the aid of the saints been instituted by God? Let him produce an example or command from the scriptures. Perhaps they get this arrangement from the courts of kings where friends must be used as intercessors. But if a king has appointed a certain intercessor, he will not want cases brought to him through others. So since Christ has been appointed intercessor and high priest, why do we seek others? Even if we go through the medieval and Reformation era monarchies and society and the way the bureaucracy worked in them, okay, that's great. But the king still also decides who the intercessors get to be. You don't just get to pick any Tom, Dick, or Harry off the street to come and intercede for you. You must go through the proper channels. So since God, the King, has appointed Jesus as the mediator, as the intercessor, why do we look for others? Continues on in paragraph 25. Here and there, this form of absolution is used. The passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the merits of the most blessed virgin and of all the saints, be to you the forgiveness of sins. 
Here, the absolution is pronounced on the theory that we are reconciled and regarded righteous not only by Christ's merits, but also by the merits of other saints. Some of us have seen a doctor of theology dying. A certain theologian, a monk, was enlisted to comfort him. He pressed on the dying man nothing but this prayer, Mother of grace, protect us from the enemy, receive us in the hour of death. Again, this idea. Think of this absolution. I mean, just let me read it again. The passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the merits of the most blessed Virgin Mary and of all the saints, be to you the forgiveness of sins. How comforting is that? How much stock can you put into that? Or would you rather hear in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Where do you find the most confidence? Where do you find the firmest foundation that you are forgiven? It is in the declaration you are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not may these things, you know, with the wish, may these things be forgiveness. No, no. Christ came to give forgiveness and have it be concrete and have it be understood. Not to be toyed around with, not to be questioned. Am I forgiven? No, you are forgiven by Christ. This is the biggest thing we have with the Roman Catholic absolution is because there is no absolution. It's just confession. And then you have satisfactions. And we've talked about that before in Article 12 on repentance. Uh, you can go back and listen to those podcasts and hear that again. But we move on. Paragraph 27. Granted, the Blessed Virgin Mary prays for the church. Does she receive souls in death? Does she conquer death? Does she make alive? What does Christ do if the Blessed Mary does these things? Although she is most worthy of the most plentiful honors, yet she does not want to be made equal to Christ. Instead, she wants us to consider and follow her example. The very subject reveals that in public opinion, the Blessed Virgin has taken over Christ's place. People have invoked her, have trusted in her mercy, and through her have wished to appease Christ, as though he were not an atoning sacrifice, but only a dreadful judge and avenger. We believe, however, that we must not trust that the saints' merits are applied to us, that because of these Christ God is reconciled to us, regards us just, or saves us. For we receive forgiveness of sins only by Christ's merits when we believe in him. Of the other saints, it has been said, each will receive his wages according to his labor, 1 Corinthians 3.8. That is, they cannot mutually give their own merits one to another as the monks sell the merits of their orders. Even Hilary says of the foolish virgins, looking at Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, As the foolish virgins could not go forth with their lamps extinguished, they sought those who were prudent to lend them oil, to whom they replied that they could not give the oil because there might not be enough for all. In other words, no one can be aided by the works and merits of another because it is necessary for everyone to buy oil for his own lamp. Hilary Poitier's very wonderful statement here, looking at the wise and foolish virgins, Jesus himself saying that there is nowhere else that you can go and find it 
Because what happens when the foolish virgins do buy oil and come in? The door is already closed. It is locked. They are not letting anybody else in. And they are told, I never knew you. What more devastating words could be heard than those of beating on the gates of heaven, quite literally, demanding, begging to be let in, and Jesus saying, go away, I never knew you. And in popular Roman piety, yes, the Blessed Virgin Mary is much more highly honored than Jesus himself. And again, like last week, I told you, just look at any Roman Catholic supply catalog and you will have pages upon pages upon pages upon pages of stuff for the Blessed Virgin Mary. You probably have half of it for Jesus. And most of that is probably going to be the Immaculate Heart or the Divine Mercy, which still don't even talk about Jesus so much so as talks about the mercy of God given through the Virgin Mary. But again, we just keep going. Paragraph 31. The adversaries teach us to place confidence in the invocation of saints. Although they have neither God's word nor an example of scripture, they apply the saints' merits on behalf of others in the same way they apply Christ's merits. And they transfer to the saints the honor belonging only to Christ. Therefore, we cannot accept their opinions about the worship of the saints nor the practice of invocation. For we know that confidence is to be placed in Christ's intercession because this alone has God's promise. We know that Christ's merits alone atone for us. Because of his merits, we are regarded righteous when we believe in him. As the text says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 1 Peter 2.6 and also Romans 9.33 and Isaiah 28.16. Neither are we to trust that we are regarded righteous by the merits of the Blessed Virgin or of the other saints. The following error persists also among the educated. Each saint has been given a particular duty. Anna gives riches. Sebastian wards off diseases. Valentine heals epilepsy. George protects horsemen. These opinions have clearly sprung from pagan examples. Among the Romans, Juno was thought to give wealth. Phoebus to ward off fever. Castor and Pollux to protect horsemen and so on. If the invocation of the saints were taught with the greatest caution, even such speculation is dangerous. Why defend it when it has no command or testimony from God's word? Indeed, it does not even have the testimony of the ancient writers. First, as I have said, when other mediators are sought in addition to Christ, and confidence is put in others, the entire knowledge of Christ is hindered. The subject sows this. In the beginning, mention of the saints seemed to have been permitted. It was viewed as tolerable as in the ancient prayers. Afterward, invocation followed, and abuses that are unnatural and more than pagan followed invocation. From invocation, the next step was to images. These also were worshipped. A force was supposed to exist in them, just as musicians imagine that a force exists in images of the heavenly bodies carved at a particular time. In a certain monastery, we have seen a statue of the Blessed Virgin. It turned automatically by a trick, seeming to turn away from those who did not make a large offering to nod to those making a request. Again, when we get down to it, the invocation of the saints leads to nothing more than pagan idolatry. Because now we have people buying images of the saints to pray to them, to worship them, to venerate them, and not Christ. And it comes down to 
even the monastery that they talk about with the virgin that will the statue of the virgin that will turn away from people not making a large enough offering or will look like she is nodding to those yeah it's all a trick very much done like the pagan idols of the philistines or of the ammonites or even the babylonians if you read the story of daniel and bell and the dragon from the apocrypha all of these things are seen as nothing but tricks in order to make money and that is not the goal of the church to make money but to minister to people who are hurting and the desire to make money usually causes people to be more hurt than helped picking up in paragraph 35 the incredible stories about the saints which are taught with great authority in public go beyond the marvelous tales of the statues and pictures. While being tormented, Barbara asked for the reward that no one invoking her should die without the Eucharist. Standing on one foot, another recited the whole Psalter daily. Some wise man painted Christopher. He did so to illustrate that there should be such great strength of mind in those who bear Christ, that is, those who teach or confess the gospel. It is necessary for them to undergo the greatest dangers. Then the foolish monks taught the people that they should invoke Christopher, as though such a Polyphemus once existed. The saints performed very great deeds, either useful to the state or providing private examples. Remembering these acts would go far toward strengthening faith and following their example in the administration of affairs. However, no one has searched for these from true stories. Indeed, it is helpful to hear how holy men ruled governments, how disasters and dangers went under, they underwent, how holy men helped kings in great dangers, how they taught the gospel, what encounters they had with heretics. Examples of mercy help as well, such as when Peter, we see Peter forgiven his denial, Mark 16, 7. When we see Cyprian forgiven for having been a magician, when we see Augustine having experienced faith's power and sickness, steadily affirming that God truly hears believers' prayers. It was beneficial that these examples, which contain reminders for either faith or fear or the rule of the state, be repeated. But certain silly persons, having knowledge neither of faith nor of governing states, have invented stories sounded like poems. They contain superstitious models for certain prayers, fastings, and additional works for bringing and gain. These are the miracles that have been invented about rosaries and similar ceremonies. There is no need to recite further examples here, for the legends, as they call them, the mirrors of examples and the rosaries in which they are very many things not unlike the true stories of Lucian, which are still in existence. The bishops, theologians, and monks praise these freakish and wicked stories because they help them get their daily bread. They do not put up with us, so that Christ honor and office may be more evident, we do not require the invocation of the saints, and we condemn the abuses in the worship of saints. All good people everywhere greatly wanted the bishop's authority or the preacher's diligence to help correct these abuses. Yet in the confutation, our adversaries completely overlook other apparent sins. They do so as they wish by receiving the confutation to push us to accept even the most scandalous abuses. What we have for the stories and the legends of the saints, and that's truly what they are, are legends, not any different from the King Arthur legends, is stories made up by people, again, in order to increase revenue for the bishops, theologians, and monks to get their daily bread. That is the whole reason they are there. That is the whole reason they keep propagating them 
throughout the whole system. And even in the confutation, they overlook all of this to just demand that this be done. Period. Don't ask questions. Don't concern yourself about the truthfulness or not of the stories. Just pray to the saints. Picking back up in paragraph 40. The confutation has been written untruthfully, not only on this topic, but almost everywhere. There is no passage in the confutation in which they distinguish between apparent abuses and their teachings. Nevertheless, if any of them can think, they confess that many false opinions are contained in the teaching of the scholastics and canon lawyers. Besides, they keep many abuses that crept into the church due to the pastor's ignorance and negligence. For Luther was not the first to complain about public abuses. Long before these times, many educated and excellent men greatly regretted the abuses of the mass, confidence in monastic observances, services to the saints intended to gain a profit, and the confusion of the doctrine about repentance. The latter should be as clear and plain in the church as possible. We ourselves have heard that excellent theologians desire moderation in the scholastic teaching. It contains much more for philosophical quarrels than for piety. Nevertheless, the older theologians are generally closer to Scripture than are the recent theologians. Their theology has worsened more and more. Many good men, who at the beginning were friendly to Luther, saw that he was freeing people's minds from these mazes of most confused and countless discussions held by the scholastic theologians canon lawyers. They saw that Luther was teaching things beneficial for godliness. When they wanted us to agree to the confutation, the adversaries were not honest in overlooking the abuses. If they wanted to help the church, they should encourage our most excellent emperor to take measures to correct the abuses. We see plainly enough that the emperor wants the healing and well-establishing of the church, but the adversaries do not act to help the emperor's most honorable and most holy will, but they act in every way to crush us. Many signs show that they have little anxiety about the state of the church. They make no effort to see that the people have a summary of the church's teachings. They defend clear abuses by new and unusual cruelty. They continue every day to shed innocent blood. They do not allow suitable teachers in the churches. Good people can easily decide if these things help. In this way, they care neither for their own authority nor for the church. After the good teachers have been killed and sound teaching hindered, fanatical spirits will rise up. The adversaries will not be able to restrain them. They will disturb the church with godless teachings and will overthrow the entire church government. We wish very much to keep this government. Now here are some crazy things to be said by the Lutheran reformers. But first of all, pointing out that when the Roman theologians sought for the Lutherans to accept the confutation, they wanted it just blank acceptance. Don't ask questions. Accept it as it is written and be done. And we can go on with life the way it has been. But the point of the matter, one of the things that brought the people to Augsburg in the first place, the reason why Charles V even called the Diet of Augsburg in 1530 in the first place was he was trying to get the church united once again so that there was not infighting while he was having to battle the possible invasion from foreign countries. But the Roman theologians, the church, wants nothing to do with how the state runs because 
After all, the emperor can be replaced, and the pope has done it before. But as long as we have the pope, as long as we have the church, everything will be fine. And Melanchthon says, very much so with the reformers, we don't mind the church government. We don't mind having the pope as long as he accepts the fact that he is there by human tradition, by human right, not divine right, that he has it there because we have decided, well, the bishop of Rome is the top bishop. We can handle that as long as it's not seen as being handed down from God. And above all, regardless of all of the problems with the church government in the medieval church, Melanchthon and the Reformers simply want the theologians, they want the bishops and the pastors to actually care about the flocks that they have been put over, to actually care about the people. But in this case, and in many other cases, they would rather sit and have their philosophical quarrels than actually deal with the people. And that is one of the biggest problems in the church. I mean, it doesn't, regardless of the denomination, there are always those people who want to just sit and argue and debate. And, you know, arguing even in a good sense of debating the good and bad of anything is wonderful. But to put that as the entire thrust of your life and Remember, oh, on Saturday evening, oh, I, I have a sermon to write for tomorrow, and I'll just scribble something out and go on. No, that's not the way God established the church. That's not the way that God wants his people fed. All right, we conclude this article, paragraph 44. Most excellent Emperor Charles, for the sake of Christ's glory, which doubtlessly you wish to praise and magnify, we beg you not to agree to the violent advice of our adversaries. Rather, we beg you to seek other honorable ways of establishing harmony so that godly consciences are not burdened, that no cruelty is exercised against innocent people, as we have seen before, and that sound teaching is not hindered in the church. To God above all, you owe the duty to preserve sound teaching and hand it down to future generations, to defend those who teach what is right. For God demands this when he honors kings with his own name, calling them God, saying, I said you are gods, Psalm 82, 6. They should work toward the preservation and growth of divine things, that is, the gospel of Christ on earth, Acts 12, 24. As God's representatives, they should defend the life and safety of the innocent. That is Melanchthon's plea to Emperor Charles as he finishes up this. As we talked about, Charles had brought about the Diet of Augsburg in the first place to help regroup the church so that he had a solid basis under him and not have infighting. But, of course, the Roman theologians say, well, everybody has to accept our say-so because it is our say-so. The reformers in Germany and those in Switzerland and other places around the Holy Roman Empire that have broken away from the Roman Church at this time say, no, we must be in agreement first of all, and then we can work toward the true unity that God calls us to have. 
because it is truly the unity of the people that matters. All right, that's it for this week. I thank you for being here. Once again, Happy New Year. Thank you for having been part of Wrestling with Theology in 2021, and I pray that you continue to move on in 2022 hearing the Word as we go through the confessions and through the Scriptures weekly. And I thank you for being here and listening so that you may be better equipped to wrestle with the theologies around you today and always. Amen.